0: Yeah, I got my coffee. You all set? (laughs) Hi, and welcome to Gallery Guide, the Sordoni Art Cast, the official podcast of the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University. I'm Heather Sinkavage, and I am the director of the gallery.
1: I'm Carly Stasco, and I'm the outreach coordinator and co-host of Gallery Guide. My job today is to be the voice of curiosity, since this is not my wheelhouse.
0: (laughs) So Carly made me the voice of knowledge for our podcast today. Um, But before we jump into our chat, I thought we'd mention what's going on in the gallery. Our current show is Martha Posner's Brutal Beauty, which is an exhibition curated by me.
1: So Brutal Beauty is a mid-career retrospective of the Martins Creek multidisciplinary artist Martha Posner. Using folklore, mythology, and fairy tales as a foundation of her exploration on women's trauma, Posner creates visceral and emotional works of art. We hope you can catch it in the gallery until April eleventh, 2021.
0: So uh, this work can be difficult to view Uh, often first time visitors mention how unsettled they feel when they first enter the gallery. So that's a pretty important note. Um, Posner's work can be triggering for those with similar experiences and even those without those experiences. Uh, But we feel this is a really important dialogue to have, especially on a college campus. It is here where uh, we see her work intersect with a long history of women artists artists who tackle violence against women. Because of this, please listen with care as we will be covering themes around rape and violence in our discussion today.
1: So today we're talking about a huge favorite around the office here, Artemisia Genileschi. And I'm going to need you to talk me through that name at least once on the record, because I am a Northeast Pennsylvania girl at heart, and I keep wanting to give it that Polish twist, the Janeleszki, you know, that name that has like no vowels besides like Z and Y are considered vowels, I'm fine with that. I cannot say Artemisia's last name please
0: (laughs) you know and and my Ukrainian background like to do the same thing Um, it's Gentileski
1: Gentileski
0: okay yep so it's there's it's Italian so we've got all this wonderful sing songiness to it very
1: bouncy okay exactly yeah totally so set the scene for us when was she alive where was she working
0: Yeah, so Artemisia, which, you know, I I tend to think of her as almost like a friend, Um, but she is an Italian Baroque painter. She is considered a celebrity painter for her time period. She was born in Italy uh, and uh, she lived in Rome for much of her childhood. She was alive during the Baroque period, which was from 1593, to 1653, but as her career took off and life events happened, Artie Masia, uh she moved around. Um, she lived in Florence, she w- lived in Genoa, Venice, uh, but she spent her final 20 plus years in Naples.
1: Cool. So for listeners like me who may not have memorized Italian art movements, um, can we get a, an idea of what Baroque style actually looks like? So for me, my frame of reference is the palace of Versailles because a tour guide once mentioned it was modeled after Italian Baroque so the whole idea was just to be gilded and gaudy as so so what are the hallmarks of Baroque art in general
0: Sure. So Baroque art is an outgrowth of the Renaissance. So it maintained its somewhat naturalist style, but it was like super extra about it. So it is drama. It is ornate. So that gilded and gaudy AF, that is definitely the case. It's very ornate. It is, um, we see a lot of theatrical lighting it is very appealing to the senses. So it's very visceral. Like if you're going to um, say, if you cut your hand, it is going to bleed all over the place. It's it's gonna gush all over the place. It's not gonna be a little scratch, you know? Um, And certainly Artemisia, you know, is not showing little scratches, (laughs) but it's also very emotional. So it is really tapping into our senses. Um, at this point in time, this is where we see the t- the term chiaroscuro um, established, and that is this contrasty use of light over three dimensional forms. And um, Caravaggio is probably the best known for establishing this. He was this bad boy painter during um, during the time. Um, uh, you know, Artemisia would have definitely known about him, and we can see a lot of his inspiration in her work.
1: Cool. So. That's a really good way for me to contextualize like what artwork is coming from that time period. Yeah. So if that's the case, why are we talking about a baroque artist in reference to contemporary artist Martha Posner? Yeah, right
0: I, I get it. It seems like a, a huge disconnect but we're gonna thread that needle. Um, so a standard narrative structure during the Italian Renaissance and Baroque period was due to, to depict biblical and mythological scenes. So this was a a shift in who is buying artwork at this point. So we're shifting from the church and we're starting to see wealthy people, uh, you know, purchase work. So this is people such as the Medici family. Um, And we are, we are seeing a new form of power in the art world. People with money are buying art and this is going in their private homes as opposed to public spaces. that is, you know, a a huge, huge difference in what they want in their homes as opposed to in the church, right? So artists like Artemisia are using narratives that depicted women overcoming oppression. Um, So by using biblical and mythological stories that people already knew and could relate to, this allowed viewers to better understand it. And um, so using these written narratives have really long been this tradition in art. So Posner is calling upon that tradition in her own work um, for the same reasons as Artemisia is. Um, Posner uses some mythology but a lot of fairy tale and folklore um, and she is banking on our associations and our knowledge of those narratives when we view her work that is references to uh, oppression and trauma.
1: Right. Cool. So where did Artemisia like learn to paint? Was this typical for her to be educated both in these narratives and in visual arts? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we definitely had women painters for the, during that time. Um, but, uh, w- Typically, women were learn, learning how to paint when they came out of a family that already was built of painters, right?
1: Okay. So
0: she learned from her dad, and that was completely acceptable during that time period. Um, women were not typically educated. They couldn't go to the academy except for this lovely little feminist bu- bubble that was in Bologna. Um, but if they were born into this family of artists, they were learning the family trade, and it was often expected that they would. Um, Most of the time the business would pass down Um, so uh we have this really interesting situation with Artemisia. So her father is Orazio Gentileschi okay. and um Orozco is very very established. Like we see his paintings in art history books, like we see them in museums. Like he's he's no chump. Like he, people right. know who he is, right? Okay. But the crazy thing is is that he's got he has um sons and from what I recall it was two sons, although when I was doing a little extra research I was trying to see if I found any more info on both of the sons and I only saw one but anyway um Aracio's sons didn't necessarily have that much of an interest in picking up the family business um and the thing is is that Artemisia ended up being like the most skilled like she started um I mean the records are pretty vague but right. it's it's thought that she started painting around 13 um, but by the time she was 17, she was super accomplished and Ratio considered her the most skilled and was actually very proud of what she was accomplishing in like, a, three short years. It was, wow. it was kind of impressive. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, Do we know this is such a, like an off tangent question, but do we know what his son or sons ended up doing? Like, did they start a new family trade of like, Hey, we're going to be basket weavers now since Artemis showed <laughs> everybody else in the family up.
0: Right, right. So uh, her brother Francesco, he did paint. Um, He didn't have the same success as Orazio and Artemisia. I mean, seriously, Artemisia um, was a celebrity painter. She was sought out by um, different, like, you know, the Medicis were after her. We had different courts throughout Europe who knew about her and wanted to collect her work. Um, so, like, you know, th- these two are, I mean, my gosh, Orazio also is a celebrity in his own right. Um, so, these two really are high-profile artists, and Francisco didn't necessarily have the same acclaim. Um, when Orazio died, Francisco entered the studio of Domenico Faciella, um and was a studio painter for him. So, essentially, he wasn't necessarily breaking out on his own. He was kind of painting under someone else's studio and kind of contributing to another name. Okay,
1: okay. So Francesco was kind of like the third property brother. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so true. (laughs) So, So her dad, Orazio, we should know him. We should definitely care. That have like a huge effect on what Artemisia was able to accomplish, like in terms of how her celebrity status went.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I think one thing, she's learning from, um, a, you know, a really great painter. So she's not learning from anybody who is, um, you know, just kind of scraping by. So she she has a good skill set. Um, and she even, and he even realizes that Artemisia is going to essentially, um, like, Exceed over him, mm-hmm. so she he sets up um, a tutor to actually teach her things that he couldn't teach her. Um, so that's like really pretty huge. Like he's really contributing to building up her career. Um, but then we also have this other thing. So she, so like Francisco was working in uh, Domenico Facili's, you know, uh, studio. Sorry, mm-hmm. just sort of, I, I just sort of spit that name out. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, Ar- Artemisia was working in Eratio's, uh studio, so was helping to contribute to work on these paintings. And, and it should be known, like when when you are working in someone's studio, um, what this means is that you're grinding pigments, you're creating paint, you are probably even, um, you know, priming and laying um, foundation, like Alprima, you know, layers onto the canvases, and perhaps even painting, like, um, like, background.
1: trees in like trees. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Like, so, so it's not, it's probably not unheard of that when we look at a Razio painting, that Artemisia's hand was probably in it. And, and that goes for many of the women artists, um, during this period, we have a lot of like Marietta Robusti, who was the, um, daughter of Tintoretto. Um, I mean, when, uh, Robusti died, um, and she was rather young when she died and the productivity level of Tintoretto's, uh, studio went way down. Oh, okay. Right. Crazy. Right. So, so like these women were sort of like the unsung heroes behind the name, you know, so um, with Artemisia kind of coming up and through really quickly, um, she, you know, she was certainly very, very skilled, but on the other side of it, because she kind of came on the scene very quickly and sort of made this big splash. There was a lot of naysayers. They were sort of like, nah, Orazio did that. Like, and that, and that goes for Yeah. Exactly. So uh, for, um, you know, some of her work was misattributed to him for, you know, a good amount of time.
1: Wow. So when did we find out it was really her? And also, like, how common do you think this probably was or is? Like, what are the odds that other women artists from this time period were straight up just lost to time because of misogyny? And I'm sure it happened before this, but is it still happening? I'm sorry, that's a lot of questions.
0: (laughs) Yeah yeah it's all good. Um so this is very common for women um throughout history. So there there are a few reasons for removing a woman's signature or obliterating it or or um starting that whole misattribution process. So um a lot of times that's driven by money. Um for some it's thought that um well let, let's start off with the misogyny actually.
1: Okay, that's <laughs> fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for some it's thought that they had too much help from a male counterpart and therefore the painting should be signed by a male. Um, yeah, so uh, at other times, women were accused of stealing paintings and signing their names to it because the work was considered to be too good to be a woman's. And that goes like all throughout history. And we see that happen even into the abstract expressionist where um, Lee Krasner was told by her teacher, Hans Hoffman, um, that, oh, you, you paint so good, you wouldn't even think it was done by a woman. Mm. right or you paint a well sorry bad bad grammar <laughs>
1: whatever it's fine pass.
0: <laughs> so so this is often the case where um work it, it is often thought that if, if it's good work it had to be done by a man right um, and this
1: is where we also get the um things like jk rowling publishing under her initials exactly. a terrible person but worth mentioning yeah. um and even the whole anonymous was a woman movement
0: yeah, 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 absolutely. And again, we also do see that happen all throughout time, in and again into the abstract expressionist, where many women are just signing with their first initial and last name. Um, you know, G. Hartigan or um, E. De Kooning. You know, that happened an awful lot of the time. Now, you know, this sometimes works in their benefit because they can make a little bit more money when the work is sold. Um, but obviously, again, it's not. It's not clearly then able to make this profit based on their skill and their, their name, essentially. Um, right. Now, you know, dealers, over time, it, you know, and this is probably why we see a lot of the misattribution that we do, dealers over time know that they could make more money if it was done by a man, um, so it is possible that they could have the signatures uh, changed themselves, or in some cases, maybe the signatures weren't necessarily changed, but it was so grimy and dirty that you couldn't really tell. So they they would just sort of say, "Oh, this was done by Joe Dude, and you know, therefore, it's worth you know twenty dollars as opposed to five, you know, right." You know. So, like, if we kind of think about, like, is this still happening? Um, yes, yes. non misattribution for the most part, but value. Value is the way things are valued is, is still wildly um, skewed. So, contemporary day, um, we have like women making up about two percent of auction sales, um, and and what does that really mean? Um, what it means is that oftentimes in these large op- op- uh, auctions, like Sotheby's, Christie's, all that sort of stuff, a lot of stuff gets scooped up by institutions so that it can okay. be, you know, um, circulated and available for a public to see. So When women are not necessarily being sold during those auctions or even being put up for sale during those auctions, it means that they are not necessarily going to be accessible in these institutions to even be seen, right?
1: Right, yeah. And we know that women make up more than 2% of artists. Hell yeah. So like,
0: I mean, if we even kind of think about MFA programs right now, um, it is literally more women are getting their MFAs, which is the terminal degree for artists. More women are getting their MFAs than are being represented in academia, in the white box galleries, in museums, in in art history textbooks. So like, it's still like not an even playing field. I like to kind of use this example because, um, you know, if we kind of think a little bit about, again, sales. Um, the current top-selling living woman artist is Jenny Saville. So her top-selling work went for $12.5 million.
1: And that's that like a reasonable, you know, chunk of change. Yeah, take. right? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I'd
0: certainly take 12.5. I'm good with that, you yeah. know?
1: And that seems totally
0: like, like, wow, like she's crushing her game. But then you think about the top-selling male artist that's living right now. Oh, no. Right. You're, you're going to cry. So that top selling work, um, was sold for over 91 million. And this is the artist, Jeff Koons. That's, that's, that's so messed up. It's a hundred percent messed up. So, you know, like we're, we're looking at, um, um, a lot, a lot of hurdles for women to still overcome. And even though that we've come so far, we still have a lot yet to, to gain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back with all things Artemisia on Gallery Guide, Sordoni ArtCast. Looking to visit the gallery with your quarantine pod? We offer safe hours on Saturdays at 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. A single employee will be available to let your group into the gallery, and the space is sanitized between groups. Contact me, Carly Stasco, at wilks.edu. That's K-A-R-L-E-Y. Dot Stasko at wilkes.edu to RSVP your space. Now we're back with more gallery guide. Artemisia Gentileschi
0: was almost lost to history due to misogyny in the art world. Please note this episode discusses Artemisia's rape and trial, which may be triggering to some listeners.
1: So back to Artemisia, um, yeah. the one thing that we need to talk about is, is her her rape and trial. So from my understanding, that really impacted and influenced the work she made as an artist. So what happened? How did this start?
0: Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned before, Orazio um, saw the promise that Artemisia had and he taught her pretty much everything he knew, and and got her tutelage for things that he couldn't teach her. And so, therefore, he he hired a, a colleague, a friend, um, Agostino Tassi, and um, and like and again, like it was a legitimate friend. This is not a stranger to the household. Um, you know, he was he was somebody who the family knew. Um, and at this point in time, so he she was he was hired when she was about seventeen um and 17 is when she painted Suzanne and the elders which you know we're going to talk about probably in a little bit which yeah. I think has a lot to do with what was happening during the early tutelage by Tassi um but during that point in time um uh, Tassi was very overbearing he was um kind of came onto to her an awful lot and the the stakes are very high for women um during the renaissance um it's imperative that they keep a chaste character that they keep the virtue that they are you know not having um you know sexual activity they are you know like presenting themselves and representing the family well so that their her father can then provide this dowry so that she can get married and she can you know marry someone of good character right Mm -hmm. so um what happens is that uh Tasi comes on to her comes on to her comes on to her and then finally um, uh, she experiences a very violent rape, um, with, uh, by Tossie. And, um, the, I, I won't kind of get too far into it, but, uh, the idea of her being raped and other people knowing about it, the only way for her to maintain, um, sort of respectability and for the family to maintain that respectability was if she would marry her rapist and that was his standard during the renaissance that women would have to marry their rapist in order to still be considered chaste right
1: right, right. So, Because you're either a mother a virgin or a whore and if you're not a virgin anymore you better become a mother before you become a whore
0: ding 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 yep you got it so um Orazio was looking for Tassi to marry Artemisia and um and Tassi said he would you know and and then continued to sleep with her because she thought she she was had a fiance she was engaged yeah yeah. um and I don't think she necessarily loved it but she's like okay this is this is this is my circumstance this is going to be my husband you know here we go um but uh Tassi didn't necessarily own up to his promise so Orazio then sues him and um, takes him to trial to force him to, to marry her. Um, now the crazy thing about all of this is that Tussie was previously married. No. (laughs) Neither of them knew that, you know, so they're thinking that, that she would be marrying this upstanding guy. And we have a lot of things that come out during that trial (laughs) that is a little messed up.
1: This is a real life Bronte novel. Okay. It's 100%. (laughs) If I did my research correctly, and I may not have, I saw that there may have been a witness, um, a family friend. Did that person testify? Or what was that situation?
0: So I, you know, I'm not clear that she did, but it was reported that she assisted Tazi in breaking into Artemisia's home. So her name was Tunzia uh, and she would lived with the Gentileschi family and provide, and she ended up providing access to the home while Erazio wasn't there. So she would essentially re- report out being like, coast is clear. And basically you can come on in and harass her, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: So Tunzia was also friends with Artemisia. So this was like a huge per- betrayal and Tunzia was not like, like a, like a peer you know age-wise she was older than she was you know like Artemisia's mother had passed on so you know potentially this was a maternal figure oh yeah and like it, it I can only imagine how messed up it felt to be sold out by her yeah yeah essentially that's what it is so during the trial several people testified that Artemisia had Chase character right like but Tasi brought forward six witnesses that claimed that she modeled nude for the studio and that her father sold her as a prostitute. Um, and, you know, this was so sketchy that the judge was like, you know, you, you people are obviously lying and, and accused these witnesses of lying and just kind of discredited everything that he was trying to build in the case well, against her.
1: That's good, at least. Um, yeah. So. Like, in general, and I guess specifically also with this case, what were the repercussions of a public trial due to rape?
0: Right, right. So as we already mentioned, so a sullied woman um, isn't necessarily marrying material unless she marries her rapist. So that's like our umbrella thing here. Now, um, we also know Tassi continued to have those, have sexual relations with Artemisia, again, because she thought they were going to be getting married. Um, So obviously- you know, that whole thing broke up and that's what landed them in court. But um, also being unmarried, like Ar- Artemisia being unmarried and not necessarily now marrying material, it would create, she would now be created as a financial burden to the family. So um, that 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 typically is a, is a huge, huge issue, especially if, they're, if women aren't being educated and can't hold jobs, like they essentially are property, you know, so right. if they can't bring anything in or, or create babies or anything like that, then, that's an issue. Um, I mean, obviously we have, we have Artemisia here who is, you know, a a superstar in the making, you know, but still there's a lot of, you know, there for a typical woman during this time, this would not be a great situation.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, it seems like um, Artemisia had a lot of potential for financial independence through her artwork. I mean, at this point, at 17, she was already recognized as, you know, and this is going on a year later. So would being a sullied woman diminish the value of her artwork much more than just being a woman? Or did she really not have quite enough of a reputation in the art world yet to survive? And I hate to call it a scandal, but a scandal like this.
0: Right, right, right. So, you know, she... She was really too new. Um okay. Okay, so like um the thing about all of this, so the the trial itself was very like very well known. It people knew about it, read about it, like it it was not something happening in a small little village, you know, for just a few people. Like it was a very well-known trial and the trial itself for Artemisia was a form like we could really consider it a form of torture and humiliation. So, um, often like there's, there's like, like, it's like victim blaming to the nth degree. So like she was accused of lying so, so that she could prove she wasn't lying. She was tor- tortured with thumbscrews, you know? Oh
1: God. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's not, you know, obviously not fun, um, no. but <laughs> but she also just to even verify that she was even raped she had to endure a public examination to confirm that she was raped to confirm that she was no longer a virgin so imagine yourself a woman going to the gynecologist your gynecologist appointment getting your feet in the stirrup, scooch down scooch down scooch down you know and open up your skirt or your, your you know whatever for all to see you know usually it's that's incredibly
1: re-traumatizing
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so she's not doing that in the the comfort of a doctor's office she's literally doing that for all to sort of witness this examination and that um is exactly what you said re-traumatizing and humiliating um but the thing about Artemisia is that um you know like her 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 rape trial was very public it lasted over seven months And it's likely most would have heard about it so she but she like really kind of turned this around like she as she kind of matured into her career like she became the queen of self-promotion which is thought why she always was using her own image in her works and what she seemed to do is that she seemed to turn everything around and she adopted the judith narrative as a story and story in her work and i mean and she often seemed to gravitate towards narratives of oppressed women um, and, and how they would overcome. Um, she really leaned into it and she um, was really, since everybody knew her situation, she was not necessarily trying to be another fallen woman. Um, she was more kind of the female David who slayed the giant. And that's how I always see the Judy, uh, Judith um, beheading Holly Frenys, you know, paintings. Right.
1: Yeah. So, um, before we get into that healing process, um, real quick, what, what was the verdict? Like, what happened as a result yeah. of the trial?
0: Oh, God. Okay. So, during the trial, the judge had to repeatedly stop uh, Tassi from testifying because of lying. Um, his accounts were very contradictory. He accused Artemisia of having affairs with five different men. Um, and that also included incest with her father. Hmm. Um he said his presence in her home was uh to protect her from other men. Uh yeah. Uh he said he witnessed her writing sexually explicit letters to other men, but I mean, Ar- Artemisia was illiterate. She didn't <laughs> know how to read or write, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> she was just drawing little penises. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. She
0: eventually learned, but at this time she didn't know how to how to write. So that's bullshit. Yeah, it's nonsense. <laughs> um and uh, he also accused Orazio's home of being a bordello. Um, and he, you know, also said that he sold his daughter for a loaf of bread. Um, so like not even worthy of money. It was just, was just being sold for food. Um, and, you know, and the other thing I found in my research is that, you know, Tassi was, was successful in rape. Um, there was another man who tried to rape her. So it's not like you know, uh, tinzia was like just looking out for Tassi. Like there was other, other men that were on the prowl as well. They right. just weren't successful. So, you know, um, that's what makes Susanna and her elders uh, and the elders just really amazing to me. Um, but anyway, uh, so Tosi was found guilty. Um, he was just for five years in prison. So, but the thing about this, this is where we find out the real stuff. He was a repeat offender.
1: Mm. and
0: it it was thought that he had murdered his wife um yeah and that the wife was murdered prior to this this rape and he had also raped another woman prior to
1: this whoa whoa, whoa. okay so we're burying the lead on this one so like did Tossie face any punishment from those first crimes like right how did they not know I know. I know. So, yes, he did serve prison for the first rape,
0: but not the murder of his wife because they never found her body.
1: Of course, before DNA exists, as long as you're not at the crime scene, it's like, oh, who could have done it? (laughs) Exactly.
0: So, like, the records are pretty sparse around this point. It's thought that uh, Tassi served maybe a few months for Artemisia's rape. But the sentence was shortened and then he was pardoned by the judge. So, I mean, essentially he was able to roam free and relatively came out of this relatively unscathed.
1: Tragic. Yay! So, so forgetting Tossy, screw that guy. Um, what came after the trial? Sure. So like, you know, Artemisia does, does have like a happy ever after here.
0: Like she does marry. And she leaves, she leaves Rome. She moves to Florence. She had children. Um, Unfortunately, her daughter only survived to adulthood. Um, But what I find really interesting about her is that she also then left her husband. Oh, damn. I know. Like she kind of is this independent woman. Um, So she leaves her husband. She took her daughter, raises her herself um, based off of sales of her paintings um and she was able to support her own household which also included servants which oh, wow yeah not typical not typical at all so the thing about all of this it's like she leaves Rome she moves to Florence and and this is where she becomes like this art world sensation and like she's aware that people know her story so she uses that in marketing herself so she makes all of these self-portraits um she's depicted in these in these very heroic um, scenarios Mm -hmm. Um, and because of that she becomes really famous and um, you know like there's there's also thoughts as to like okay so she uses herself as a model so she's not to pay other people to be a model but you know we've got like uh, but I I do think there's a, a, a great sense in Like, look, I am, I, I I'm creating this career for myself and I'm, I am providing for my daughter and I don't need a man and this is how I'm going to do it. And you guys are going to face me for it. You know, I, I, I I like to think it's that.
1: (laughs) That's cool. Now, going back to that model thing, it's, it's so interesting. I didn't even think about how, like today we just have the option to Google like reclining mail in hoodie and we can get a really good reference for free. Um, but you, you needed a model back then because you didn't just have a picture of somebody. So could you make a career out of modeling or were they freelance performers who also modeled? Like, how did this come about?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's also really interesting because, again, if we kind of go back to what is the norm for women during this time, they were not educated at the academy. So if they were learning, they were learning in the studio. And it also depended on you know what type of uh, painter this, this person was that they were learning from. So um, a lot of times painters were classified into, and the academy would classify them into like, this person does mythological paintings, whereas this person over here only does portraits, which this person over here only does landscape. So we have those classifications. Um, but women were not getting any of that classification and they were not getting any of that training,
1: right? Um, They were women painters. Exactly.
0: (laughs) So they were not learning from any, anything live. It was not considered, um, appropriate for women to be learning from a nude model. So a lot of what women were learning from were plaster casts and sculptures. So, and it's like, it's a step removed. Like we're looking at another person's interpretation of the figure, So, um, so we've got that sort of situation here now models for paintings, um, most of the time ended up being studio assistants Uh, so people that were living with the family who um, hoped to be worthy of learning from to learn the skill from the master, they would earn their stripes by doing these other sort of jobs.
1: Right, and put on the Harlequin outfit and stand in the corner while I paint it, and then you, then I'll let you gesso the the canvas. Yes, one hundred percent. Now, growing up in
0: Aratzo's household, um, models in the studio probably were pretty commonplace. So, um, for Artemisia, um, I'm not aware that Artemisia had had a studio and assistance and all that sort of stuff in her career. Um, So I am thinking that um, she is providing for herself and she is kind of savvy with a budget. That's why I think she's essentially working without a model. But there's also this thing that her narratives are very female driven. And like to just go out and hire a model was probably the hardest thing to do because modeling wasn't necessarily considered a, a respectable vocation. Vo- so I know this is my long answer to the, the, <laughs> the question, but like, you know, searching the one ads, looking for uh, a model for your next, um, you know, uh, Primavera painting was highly unlikely because a model was akin to a prostitute. Um, and a lot of times prostitutes were hired to be models. Um, so it wasn't necessarily, uh, respectable. So that's why we see a lot of our studio assistants kind of taking on the role because it was considered like part of the job, you know, right.
1: It came with the territory. Cool. duties as assigned. Exactly. <laughs> cool. So Artemisia gaining this big celebrity status, using herself as a model, was this, um, just in Italy or how big was her celebrity status? Yeah. So, um, she did
0: move around a lot. So she moved throughout Italy, and therefore, like, people really became, she became really well known in Italy mm-hmm. um, and became like this sort of Italian celebrity. And so much to the fact that she was being collected by like the art collecting families of the time and the Medicis, which are the major um, art collecting family in Italy, they were collecting her. Now, um, that's not to say though that her fame didn't um, reach all across Europe because it did cool. um, so it was thought she spent time in London she collaborated with her father on uh, on his commission essentially which is now the marble house ceiling um, original location for this commission was in the queen's house and the thing about all this like they commissioned a ratio but um, the queen was like fascinated by Artemisia, and like they wanted her to go to London in the worst way. And Artemisia really didn't want to go; um, she had to be persuaded. Um, and even even though the queen, it, it was like literally an invitation from the queen. Like she really had to be persuaded to go. And we're thinking most likely it's because she has now really matured into her um, celebrityness. You know, her her career is really taken off and she's she's now a departure from a studio like it's not she's not under his wing anymore and it's thought that Horatio like really resented her for it and um, as he got older you know he had somewhat of a short temper and she, I don't think she had the patience for it like I don't think she wanted to deal but she did she went
1: Well, <laughs> oh, that's good now okay I might just be looking for drama here, but is there any chance that it was short-tempered Orazio himself that could have had anything to do with the misattribution of Artemisia's work? Or am I just being dramatic?
0: Yeah, I think you are being dramatic. Okay. And, and, I, and I, I think it is a good story. Like I, <laughs> I, I can completely see like, like yeah, that would be a really good narrative. But um, I tend to really, and when I read about this and he, and he and her kind of coming- up through and, and get gaining her skills and gaining and really being able to capitalize on her talent. Like I think about that Orazio, that father Orazio, that mentor Orazio, and he was really proud of her. And he boasted about her and how she became such a good painter and excelled against her brother within just three years, like from the age of 13 to 17. Well, that's four years, but you know, like, like, in a in a short few years that she was able to be as accomplished as she is and and he is known for really really talking that up and I and I and I really do believe that Um,
1: okay good I feel better
0: (laughs) (laughs) now like often so like her first painting that's being attributed to her and I and I keep talking about Susanna and the elders this is a theme that she did revisit throughout her career um but her this was essentially the first painting that really kind of set her up this was completed when she was 17 and often uh, many have this is this is the one that comes under the most contention mm-hmm. um people see Orazio's hand in it but he really did insist this was her painting you know okay. yeah yeah Now, if you look at it, if you consider the palette, um, it doesn't have this strong sense of chiaroscuro that the other paintings that she did has. Um, It has a much lighter palette. When she revisits this later, you see it's a little bit more Artemisia-esque, like it has that tenebrism, it has that chiaroscuro. Um, But this early one um, is a little bit brighter. It's, uh, it, it's it's a very flat sense of light as opposed to the dramatic light that we see later on um, and if we also kind of look at that painting Orazio known and comparing it to Orazio's Orazio known to paint women in a more idealized fashion whereas Artemisia's painting was very natural um, now I always see this referring to her narrative during that time. Like, she's aware of this narrative. Um, Orazio has also painted the same narrative. And I and I often kind of think that she chose to do this image at that time as almost a cry for help. Like, and this is me completely speculating. Um, right,
1: absolutely. Yeah. This is like, a hot moment, but that's okay. We're here for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like,
0: you know, I mean, we know that Tassi is harassing her. We know that there was an attempted rape by another man. At that point in time in this image we see two men that are looming over her nude body as she is on this very cold concrete or or marble or stone surface you know just looming right on over her and she is nude and just sort of like looking for them to get away whereas when we see Susanna and the, and the elders like say by Tintoretto um, she's a little bit more like engulfed into her own image and completely unaware of the other men right Artemisia chooses to show the men you know really affecting her whereas
1: yeah typically
0: it's it's, it's the woman that is just oblivious to the men in her environment and she's just taken by her own image mm-hmm. um, talking about her own vanity but this was not about vanity at all for Artemisia um, so, so anyway, I, I I really think that a misattribution of uh, Artemisia's work was essentially dealers over the years who wanted to sell paintings for a higher price, and for hundreds of years Arazia would have been that, because art history was not kind to Artemisia, freaking celebrity during her point in time, but what fall fell practically into uh, obliteration, because she was not being recorded in history books um yeah. so it it takes until you know like the women's um the the women's revolution of the 70s 1970s
1: <laughs> to start
0: to kind of dig some of these women out of um obliteration and really have their uh, accomplishments known
1: nice stick around for more gallery guide Coming up on March 24th at 6pm we'll be hosting our last Art in Context discussion with artists Martha Posner and Amy Arbus in their collaboration. April 6th at 11am we'll have a macrame workshop so you can bring brutal beauty into your home with a potted succulent. Kids can be picked up at the gallery front desk. Contact me carly.stasco at wilks.edu to rsvp that's k-a-r-l-e-y dot s-t-a-s-k-o at wilts.edu to rsvp or for more information and now we're back with more gallery guide so um besides Susanna and the elders are there any other works that we should know from Artemisia is there any that are like oh this is the one
0: well, I mean, hands down, it, we got to say Judith beheading Holifredes. Um, This is a narrative that she returns to over and over and over again. Um, she does it in a way, um, like she likes to pick apart the story uh, a bit uh, in the few iterations that she did create. Uh, and I love like her layered use of symbolism, but Um, for those of you who don't know,
1: (laughs) this is a pretty
0: graphic and gory image. Now, um, Judith is, uh, essentially, Holofernes is a general who is looking to, um, sack Judith's city. And Judith is aware of this. And she, um, is seen leaving her city in the evening. And in her head, she is going to, um, uh, seduce Polyphrenes and, mm-hmm. um, and try to kill him. Right. Which, see, but nobody in her city knows this. Right. Okay. Yeah. And everybody is pissed. You know, they're just like, she's, she's betrayed us. She's left us that like, like she's selling nobody. us out. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. But she, you know, she goes, she goes, she gets him drunk. Um, she totally kind of seduces him, but he, she gets him so drunk that he's like pass out drunk. So she's like, Well, okay, I'm gonna kill him. And her <laughs> and her <main> chairman, <laughs> totally kill him. And they and they don't even just kill him, they lop off his head and she takes it back to her city, being like, Okay, guys, I took care of the problem. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so this is like literally the David and Goliath story by women. Yeah. Yeah. So like Judith is like taking care of her problem. Now, the way that this is depicted, like we see this first and there's, I mean, this is full-fledged Artemisia. We've got the chiaroscuro, It's dramatic lighting. She's not just cutting off his head with this little knife. It's a little, it's a sword. When she did it a second time, it's an even bigger sword, you know, like she is, uh, she is coming into this calm, cool, and collected. There is no trauma in her face. She is just like, yeah. I've got a plan and I am executing this. And um, she, she, which this is the best FU ever. <laughs> the, the head, the, what, who is she depicting as Holofernes? Tossy? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I am here for it. So who is Judith? That is Artemisia. Yes. Who is that is Tussie. She is, she's got a hand, like her hand is in his hair, which is also when you read the rape trial, she pulled his hair out of his head and had it in her hand. Oh, you know, and so this is like, this is a re, you know, she's reperforming her trauma, but she's doing it in a way that showing I am the person who is like persevering here. Like yeah. I am the winner, not you, me, you know? because she did she freaking yeah. <laughs> Oh, and
1: that is like such an intense work too not a question but if you watch what we do in the shadows it's used as a reference for one of the characters laszlo beheading um his wife's lover jeff in the first <laughs> season and it's you know they replace the faces but you could see the strength and the violence in it yeah. so not a question but i love that she's still showing up in pop culture
0: Oh my God, absolutely. I, and me too, because like again, she was lost, she was lost for so many years and many, and, and and like we're now starting to see her with the street cred that she so deserves, you know? Like, um, I mean, like we're looking at a woman who is I I would consider one of the first women in visual art to politicize her personal experience by using the the story and using the story to represent her own personal narrative. Now, I know there are many scholars out there that do not, that want to separate the personal narrative with the professional accomplishment, but I really do see them as intertwined. And I feel like um, it's, it's important to acknowledge that she is showing women overcoming oppression. Whereas for many, many years, we didn't necessarily have that opportunity. Women were not necessarily going there because they were they they were just I mean in in many respects I think just trying to kind of fit in and earn just respect in general I think Artemisia kind of is taking it to another level she had nothing to lose everybody knew what happened to her so why not lean into it
1: yeah
0: yeah now, I mean, I think the thing too about this is that like, I mean, gosh, thanks pandemic for, you know, hijacking Artemisia's like big year because last year was a huge, huge year for Artemisia because for the first time she was getting this huge retrospective, this big blockbuster exhibition at the National Gallery in London. Oh, I know. Like all the Judith uh, beheading Holofernes were in the same room together. Oh. <sighs> You know, like we're, we, we have the unveiling of a brand newly attributed piece, the self-portrait of St. Catherine. It was cleaned up. It was like this beautiful um, self-portrait of depicting herself as, again, a saint who was overcoming oppression, um, showing her breaking the wheel of which she was tortured on, like yeah. huge, huge year and shut down pretty much for the most part by, by the pandemic. for
1: you, COVID now you said recently attributed and this is blowing my mind because here we are in 2021 um i know i asked how we get these recent attributions before but is there like a scientific process for testing paint chips to see if they come from the same batch or something like how did we find out something new so many years later
0: yeah yeah yeah. i mean and you're absolutely right so like often often when we are um cleaning paintings a lot is uncovered so sometimes it doesn't even take almost that much but um, the cleaning of paintings often can um, uncover um, signatures or even uncover you know because there's a really uh, famous incident with Judith Leister and Franz Halls and like there was a Franz Halls that was signed over a Judith Leister painting and um, you know again because of a dealer probably could get more money for the Halls rather than the Leister but um, but like oftentimes the cleaning process can uncover an awful lot and that those, that grime can really obliterate, you know, especially the, the, around the edges of the painting, because if that's where the frame is, it's easy oh, for that grime to get stuck. Yeah, yeah, it's stuck there, but, th- and through the tea, it's a really tedious process. The, the idea of this whole like process of cleaning, it's crazy. Um, because it's often done with Q-tips, you know, little by little. Yeah, yeah, but, um, but paintings are x rayed and there are often, like, really significant questions that are uncovered through those x-rays as well, and as you mentioned, yes, there is a process for t- testing paint chips, and painting mediums are analyzed, glues, Je, you know, like uh, uh, gessos, like all, all of, like canvas threads, all of that stuff that can be tested and you can um, really kind of firm up an attribution through that process. And, um, you know, I'm no expert. I've never been involved in anything like right. that. But I think what a really cool thing is, is that um, just near us at the Allentown Art Museum, they, they recently had an attribution of a Rembrandt.
1: Oh, Wow. Um,
0: I know. And it's on view actually right now. And they go into this whole, like whole process of attributing that to Rembrandt because for many years it was, it was attributed to Rembrandt when it, when they had the title card out and then um, it was not, then it was like, you know, unknown for a while. And then they were, then they had it tested and they're like, nope, this is legit. It's a legit right. Rembrandt and it's really, really cool. So like, if you wanted to really kind of learn more about it and see an example of a newly a- attributed piece, the Allentown Art Museum really has it going on right now.
1: I know what I'm doing this weekend. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, getting back to Artemisia, what, is, what does her story tell us about the current exhibition? About-
0: yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is where we're hoping to thread the needle. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> so like, so you know, I, we've talked a lot about Artemisia's narrative. We talked a lot about um, the narratives that she uses in her own work. And, you know, I think it is still an issue that women today um, are, 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 don't necessarily feel empowered that they can speak up about rape, assault, or abuse. Now, since the Me Too movement erupted, there's been a trend of more women reporting rape. Um, And that is a huge win. You know, that's since 2017, we've got a huge uptick, but the status quo still remains. We're not necessarily um, getting, like, we have women reporting, but we aren't necessarily seeing the action. So that's a really crucial point and a crucial moment, because until we start seeing action, we'll start to see less reports of rape, right? Right. So um, the thing about all this is that um, Martha is using well-known narratives to express um, situations she has faced or um, her peers have faced and you know although she's not necessarily using the biblical narratives that you know like like Artemisia is using Judith mm-hmm. um Martha is Martha's using you know fairy tales and folklore to express her experiences with violence and using such these narratives really globalizes um for what feels like kind of an isolating experience like one four women have experienced rape But it's still really instilled in us that we, we need to suffer in silence. Like This is a cross that we'll bear ourselves.
1: Yeah. 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 So actually this is, this is wild because like the, the whole vibe I'm getting from this conversation is this idea that we've been, we've been saying these same things over and over again. Like Artemisia's trial looks, you know, looks so much like the Me Too movement, but with with different language and different branding and you know you know how I feel about the bluebeard folktale that one (laughs) unless it is disobey your husband because he might actually be a serial killer black widower like that's coming from you know France around the same time period as Artemisia is going through this and that story was being told longer and then I also get you know we find out that Tassie was a murderer probably before yeah Oh my god, this is where these stories are coming from, but it's also I'm seeing that in Memory and Desire, that wedding dress piece from Martha, and I think it's really interesting that we have art recognizing these psychological trends and putting it into language we could understand far better than psychology itself, and in Artemisia's case before psychology even existed.
0: Right. Right, 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 right. I agree, you know, and I and I think um there there's something to like realizing these stories that we've been told all along, like, you know, I, 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 I knew the Red Riding Hood story, you know, and I, it was just sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, like I, I kind of saw it for what it is, but when you look back on it and you see how messed up, how it's this representation of bringing this young girl to the bed, and if you disobey and go off your path, you know, you'll be eaten by the wolf, but really that's like, it, it's, you know, the wolf is a symbol of the sexual predator and, you know, all that sort of stuff, like yeah. we've got all that, crazy townness. Um, but you know, like when I look at like memory and desire and this is probably my favorite work in the show, like it, oh, it was you. a work that I, yeah, <laughs> it is a work that I persuaded, uh, Martha to, um, actually remake because it, the first version didn't exist anymore. So she remade this for us. Um, so
1: thank you, Martha. Yeah, um, sure.
0: <laughs> for me, memory and desire, uh, is, a great piece to talk about in reference to trauma. And um, like, while you have like this tie tie to Bluebeard in that narrative, like that wasn't one that I was as aware of, but for me, this was uh, like a really perfect depiction of disassociation Um, and disassociation in a way, because uh, you know, like I am, I am a survivor of abuse and rape and assault. And um, during my assault, I, I experienced um, disassociation. So, like this aspect of floating above yourself um, happened as I looked down on myself, you know, kind of helpless. And um, for me, like memory and desire is exactly this it's the splitting of two as an act of preservation and really trying to kind of hold on to your sense of self. So, this overwhelmingly awful thing that's happening to you doesn't completely have you implode. Um, that's how I've always seen memory and desire. Um, and I, I will always <laughs> see it that way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a perfect depiction of this aspect of, of um, how we experience trauma.
1: Right, my friend is actually getting her master's in counseling and we've been talking about brutal booty a lot through that context. And one thing she was telling me is that like these traumatic memories are stored differently in the brain yeah. for quick accessibility. So like, it's supposed to be an evolutionary advantage to avoid danger, like, oh, we have instant recall in the form of a trigger makes us situationally aware super fast. And like, that makes sense for like a lot of phobias and danger or whatever. But we're in modern society, like we don't need that as much we need normal memory. Mm -hmm. So like, when we're recalling normal memories, we're remembering the last time we remembered that event, instead of the event itself. Yeah, But triggers are totally different. They bring up that, you know, purely visual aspect. And we do go right to that initial event. Mm-hmm. Um, so no longer how, no matter how long that trigger's been dormant, it just instant recall. So what's cool is interesting is that the main impetus behind this like talk therapy and play therapy is that the patient is able to rewrite that recall process. So you're like creating a narrative, especially one that the patient can control, can like really shift those traumatic triggers to a controlled memory recall. And then when you get to control the narrative, you have a much better control of how you like process it, especially, and this is, I'm sure the most important part when it's done in a safe environment. So I think there's a good chance that Artemisia's work is like showing her taking control of that narrative, and I think there's you know a possibility that this helped her mentally even more than it helped her career.
0: I agree. I completely agree. And and um, and obviously we didn't have these processes right like back then to even acknowledge that. Um, And and I and I do want to sort of like understand that while her work really did help her process her experiences. Was it, it? It shouldn't be considered therapy. Um, you know, oh, but, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no baroque there,
1: psychologists were working at uh, time.
0: <laughs> and and I always like because I, I, you know my own I, as as a practicing artist myself, and and uh, using my own narrative. Often when I talk with people, uh, people are like, "Oh, this." So the what you make is kind of like art therapy, and I and I do want to make a distinction that there is exercises that are guided, that are meant for healing and for, for reforming those memories to, in a safe way, right? as opposed to forms of expression. So, you know, I know for myself, forms of expression are depicting like what it is to experience that sort of thing, what it is to be in, to experience PTSD and, and how that is affecting me from day to day. So I think this is really what makes Artemisia like really special. Um, not only is she one of the first one of few women making a living as a painter during the Renaissance and the, and the Baroque t- period, mm-hmm. she's completely doing it on her terms. And she's using the narrative in a way that none of her contemporaries were doing. And, and I, and I find that to be incredibly groundbreaking. She's truly one of the first who embodies the personal's political. That's it right there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Artemisia was a cultural reset and we could talk oh, about her all day. <laughs> unfortunately we do have to wrap up at some point so we hope you enjoyed our talk and feel motivated to visit Martha Posner's Brutal Beauty on view in the gallery until April 11th you can check out our website for gallery hours at wilks.edu slash art gallery Yeah,
0: and we hope you stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Um, Click that follow button on your favorite podcast platforms. And we also announce when new episodes drop on our social media. So be sure to follow us at Sordoni Gallery on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have tons of fun content there about the gallery. And each podcast would not be possible without a lot of people. Now, Carly and I definitely want to thank our SAG staff, um, this amazing team of students work behind the scenes and they bring so much of our social media content and other interpretive content that you experience in and around the gallery. Um, We also want to thank Wilkes University for their support of the gallery, the Sordoni Gallery Advisory Commission, and definitely the Sordoni family for their ongoing commitment to the arts in the Northeastern Pennsylvania region for so many
1: years. Well, I want to thank Heather for teaching me about Artemisia, my friend Sonia for teaching me about traumatic memories, and Wikipedia for teaching me pretty much everything else. But also, let's give a big shout out to the ghost of Artemisia for fueling us with her mad feminine rage. Let it bring you joy in this 2021, and we hope to see you again soon.